You can be seated. Oh, sweet Jesus, you are so good to us. You are so sweet to us. You are so kind to us, God, to, to sit here and, and, and to sing about how your victory, your, your sovereignty, your sufficiency means that, that there is nothing that can truly defeat us, that, that, that regardless of our circumstances and regardless of, of how painful or how wrong or how broken things might seem, that you have resurrected and you have made a way for us and you will resurrect us. There is nothing, not even death, that can truly defeat your church. God, you are so good to us. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate you. Jesus, be be pleased with us today. With the words that come out of our mouths, with the, the meditations in our hearts, God, we ask ultimately that you would be glorified in this space. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. I already said that, but I'm saying it again. What a joy to be together. We get to be here in this space, and we get to celebrate our risen Lord. Amen? And by the way, that's what today is about, and that's what we're actually going to talk about. I'm excited for us to take a few minutes to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, because this is Resurrection Sunday. This is what Easter is all about, and as we've already heard from that scripture reading Brother Jim did for us, this is what Christianity is all about. Jesus rose from the dead, literally, physically. He was dead, and then he wasn't dead. Which, by the way, like if we can sit with that for a moment, is not a normal thing. (laughs) I've been to a couple funerals. Haven't experienced that one yet. And if I did, I would be alarmed. But that's what we're coming here to declare. That our Lord was dead and now he is not. He is not in the tomb. He is risen. And when we trust in that proclamation, that changes everything. Beloved, Jesus' work on our behalf. When I say that, I mean, I mean his perfect life, his unjust death, his supernatural resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his promised return. Jesus' work on our behalf, beloved, is sufficient. He made a way for us, a way for us to experience life and freedom and salvation in him. We get to engage in that proclamation of that gospel in trust and in faith. He he gives us real faith. He gives us a new heart, a real changed heart. And this overflows out of us. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. They let me preach once already this morning. You guys are lucky you came to this one. The next one's going to be... It's going to be wild. I don't know what I'm going to do up here. <laughs> Guys, today we're going to be in Luke 24. I'd invite you to turn over there. I want, to, I want to jump straight into the Word today because it's why we're here. Luke 24, starting in the first verse, the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, we read this. But on the first day of the week at early dawn... They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Come on. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And this, beloved of the Lord, is the word of God. What a text. What a text. I love, I love how Luke's telling of the resurrection ends out. We have this, this scene of, of Peter walking away marveling. I mean, can there be a better response? He marveled. Well, of course he marveled. I, I, I know I kind of already said this, right? But, but tombs don't often turn up empty. And when they do, I don't know if you guys keep up with this sort of thing in the news, but when they do, it's most certainly not because the dead were raised. Of course he marveled. But as we'll see as we look at this text, there actually is a much better response to the resurrection of Jesus than simply marveling, and that is believing. Beloved, I'm going to say this over and over and over until you hoop and holler, and then I'll let you leave. (laughs) Beloved of Jesus, he is risen. Death could not hold him. Jesus' plan to defeat and win us to himself for eternity, catch this, guys, it worked. We can have forgiveness of sins. We can have eternal communion with our creator, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ, you and I. We can have this, and all it takes is the belief of faith. It's, it's, it's trusting the trustworthy. You and I can believe in the proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus. So here's what I'd like to do with our text today. I'm going to walk us back through this story that, if we're honest, for most of us is pretty familiar. I'd like to put it within its proper context within Luke. Then we'll talk about how it fits into the larger scriptural story. I'll I'll point out a couple aspects of the text that I think will help us better understand it and specifically think about Luke's telling of this story, some stuff that we can easily miss. And I think this will ultimately lead us to this amazing truth about belief and trust in our God. And we're going to wrap this whole thing up with some of Paul's teachings to the Colossian church. And then we'll end by celebrating our risen Lord through communion. Sound like a plan? It's good. Let's get to it. We're looking at Easter, remember, from the perspective of Luke, right? There's four gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who all tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. And we're, we're looking at this in Luke's gospel today. If you were able to join us on Good Friday, then we, we walked through Luke's telling of the Passion Night already. But, but just in case you weren't there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch us up to speed. So, so on Holy Week, this last week of Jesus' life, he, he enters into Jerusalem for this final time and, and spends time kind of back and forth debating with the religious leaders and the, the conflict that has arisen with them is, has come to the head in such a way that it's, it's going to end badly. It's just a matter of when and how it ends badly. 
On, on Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus celebrates a, a shared meal, a Passover meal with his closest friends. This is what we call the Lord's Supper, his last meal on earth. And he told them to continue to take these elements in, in remembrance of him, to, to commemorate the giving of his body and his blood, to proclaim his sacrifice until his return, which, by the way, we're going to do that today as part of our worship. We're going to join in with, with believers for the last 2,000 years and proclaiming the sufficiency of that sacrifice. Shortly after this meal, he's betrayed by one of the very friends that he shared the meal with. He's handed over to a group of jealous and violent religious leaders who are plotting his death. Thursday night is passed in, in what amounts to a mock trial and beatings and mocking that they all come together in the morning with him being brought before the Roman political leader of the area, Pilate, who consents to have Jesus crucified in spite of acknowledging that there's any evidence of any wrongdoing deserving death. And then Jesus is literally physically, emotionally, spiritually tortured before being taken and literally physically nailed to a wooden cross and left to suffer a gruesome death. And after agonizing hours, Jesus cries out to God the Father and surrenders his spirit and dies. And, I, and it's important for us to have this picture in mind as we walk into Easter Sunday, alone, abandoned by his friends, even by his very father, Jesus dies as the most wretched of sinners. Our sweet Savior, the lover of our souls. As the scripture says, for our sake, he being God, made him being Jesus to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sweet Jesus became sin and died the sinner's death. As the scripture says, the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus paid our wages and suffered an unjust sinner's death. And just like that, he breathes his last and he dies. And they took his body down and buried it as quickly as possible because this special holiday Sabbath is approaching and once sundown hit, they could not touch a dead body because it was unclean. And we're reminded that all that remained of this kind and beautiful Rabbi Jesus is an unclean dead body. And the tomb was sealed and the stone was left and that's where Friday leaves us. In this quiet moment of death and loss. And then Sunday rolls around. And on Sunday morning, when the Sabbath was over, some of Jesus' most loyal followers come out to honor his body. Now, this is where our text picks up, and there's a couple of important things to note here. I love this. First thing to remember is that these followers who come to honor Jesus in his death, these are the women folk. Now, if you've read and studied the Gospel of Luke compared to the other Gospels before, one of the most beautiful things about Luke's telling of the Gospel is that he really focuses in on Jesus' love and the impact of the Gospel on those who are marginalized and forgotten in society. And he puts a lot more emphasis on the role of women in the early church. And we're introduced to these women who come to honor Jesus after his death. And I love this scene because these women are the women who've been with Jesus since day one. 
They followed him through Galilee. They literally financially supported his ministry. They met his physical needs and fed him meals. And hear this, church. When everything went down and it went bad, it wasn't Peter who said, I'd rather die than leave you, who stuck by Jesus. The 12 turned tail and fled. With the exception of the Apostle John, none of them were willing to walk to Golgotha with Jesus. But the women were there. And they stayed with him. And they watched him die. And they watched his body taken down. And they saw where it was laid. And they took note of the tomb. And they're the ones that come back to honor his body. Something about that that I think God honors Secondly, apart from noting these women, we also have to note their intention. I love this. They're here to honor the memory of their beloved and dead rabbi. You see, Jesus had not received a full Jewish burial because of the impending Sabbath day. So they were going to do him this last honor. You see, Jewish folk in this day, they did not embalm. They packed the body with ointment and spices and allowed it to naturally decay. So these women, they bring all the necessary tools and spices, fully intending to honor him the only way left they know how, which is to give him an honorable burial. I love this detail because it reinforces to us that the resurrection was on no one's mind that morning. These women are not coming to find an empty tomb. They're not coming to see the messianic prophecies fulfilled. They're coming to mourn the loss of a man they loved. That No one expected the resurrection. I mean, really quick, who would, right? That's not how life works. Easter Sunday was no one's plan except for Jesus. Except for him. Jesus planned out this moment from the very beginning. He, he knew this was coming. Even as these women are coming to honor a dead man in the midst of their mourning, Jesus is already living and breathing and awaiting them. His heart has begun to pump again. His blood has begun to flow. His lungs have begun to breathe. He is alive. I mean, wow. And when they arrive, everything gets strange and wonderful. They arrive to honor the dead, and they find an empty tomb. Now, I love this part also, but you notice Jesus doesn't come out and simply introduce himself to them, right? Instead, they find angels, the messengers of God, who declare to them what happened. And for the first time in a post-resurrection, a post-cross world, the gospel of the risen Lord is proclaimed by these angels to these women. Now, this may seem like a small detail, but I think this is actually really good for our souls today. You see, it wasn't the empty tomb that saved these women. It wasn't the empty tomb that brought them to Jesus. As, a, as astounding as this physical evidence may be, the gospel of Jesus must be proclaimed and must be believed in faith. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with evidence. I'm pretty sure if the tomb was full and there was someone there telling them, hey, Jesus rose, they'd be like, I don't think so, right? But it's important to note, the tomb doesn't get them there. What does the tomb get them? What does the text say? They look in and they're perplexed. What the heck is going on here? But then the angels speak up to them. And the angels give them this amazing proclamation and this reminder, and they remember. And they, and they see, and they believe, and look at what they do immediately. They go and they tell. 
They become witnesses. They return to the 12, and they themselves now proclaim the risen Lord. And I love this. It doesn't work. They go and they share, and the 12 hear them proclaim the gospel, and they just kind of think they're crazy. And then Peter goes and checks it out and finds the empty tomb and walks away marveling. How could he not? What a story. Let me, let me turn our attention really quick to these angels. There's something about this and about the way they spoke to these women that I think is important for us. Aside from the fact that they were wearing bedazzled clothes, and the Bible records that for us, I think that part's amazing. But, but look at how they proclaim the resurrection. Remember, this is the very first time on, on Easter Sunday that the gospel of the resurrection is proclaimed. Look what they say. Why do you search for the living among the dead? And then this. Hey, don't you remember? Don't you remember? He said this would happen. He said this the whole time. They, they call them back to Jesus' own teaching. And this brings us to the ultimate truth of Easter Sunday. That's that this, the resurrection was God's plan from the very beginning. If you go back and you start in Luke 9, where Jesus finally reveals his full Messiahship, three times he bluntly and clearly says to his followers, this is exactly what will happen. I'm going to be unjustly arrested and killed and then rise from the dead. Just wait and see. And his followers just kind of look at him and go, oh, it not make any sense. But you're doing miracles, so I'm going to keep following you, right? But in this moment, when the gospel is proclaimed and they're brought back, remember what he said. The lights come on and it clicks and they engage in what God has for them because this has been what God has been promising the entire time. This is God's master plan to defeat sin. This is not like it's actually coming out of nowhere. This was God's design to defeat sin and Satan and death and bring his creation back into fellowship with him for eternity. Guys, this is the culmination of the gospel story that God began telling in Genesis 1. Now, I don't want to get too elementary with you guys, but follow me on this. This text isn't just... The, the, the prestige of Luke. This is the prestige of the entire Bible. And we, we, we don't often think about kind of the narrative of the whole scripture. We like to zoom in on specific stories and texts, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but this text that we just read, this is the prestige of the whole story beginning to end. You'll, you'll hear Christians describe the narrative of the Bible like this. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, promise fulfilled. Think of that as chapter headings. Creation, sin, promise, Jesus, promise fulfilled. It essentially goes like this. In the beginning, God is preexistent. He makes everything that is. He sustains everything that is by his will. He makes us, he makes humanity as his special creation. He sets us apart, bearing his image. He makes us perfectly and makes us for perfect eternal union and relationship with him. But as Genesis 3 points out, what God made perfect, sin destroyed. Mankind has chosen to sin every generation from first until now. You and I were born inheriting a broken, sinful nature. And you and I have all chosen willingly to sin. And this sin breaks the perfection and union God designed us for. It brought about death. It brought about destruction. It brought pain and end and death and awfulness into God's perfect world. But 
from the very moment sin entered into the story. Literally, go back to Genesis 3 and read God's description of this new world broken by sin. From the very moment sin enters the scene, God refuses to be defeated. And he refuses to accept that this is the end of his creation. And he promises that he will fix what sin has broken. And for generations, from Genesis 3 up to the the whole of this narrative, God reinforces this promise over and over and over. Trust me, I will fix what sin has broken. Trust me, I will fix what sin has broken. And he progressively builds more and more relationship with humanity. And this, this promise comes to its culmination, its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. God, or Jesus is God in the flesh. He comes and he literally dwells amongst his people again. And he proclaims that God's kingdom is at hand. It's, it's finally here. God is doing something new. The old is gone and, and we can be a part of it. And Jesus' death and resurrection, the story where we're at right now, this inaugurates a new era for God and man. Jesus' death paid the penalty of sin. Jesus' resurrection broke the bonds of death and it promises us a resurrection like Jesus's. Death no longer has the final word on humanity. Guys, that's a wild thing to say. Let's say it again so we can take that in. Death no longer is the final word on human life. Guys, we have an eternity with God that he originally designed us for. And Jesus has made a way for us to experience this. And all of this will ultimately be realized when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And those found in Christ who've accepted his free gift of salvation will resurrect into eternity, into perfection with him, while those who've rejected the free gift of salvation that Jesus bought for them will be resurrected into eternal separation from God. Do you see this? The, the gospel story death, sin, suffering. These are not the final say on God's creation. He is God and he is king. And he's not just king, he's king over reality. Satan cannot hope to defeat God and he didn't. Jesus won. Death could not hold him. In our text today, beloved, this is the victory. This is the moment. Jesus' resurrection was not just about Jesus. It's about, it's about you and it's about me. Jesus is the first fruits. His resurrection and his promise to return, this means that there's a resurrection for you and me as well. You see, guys, think of it this way. God promised that Jesus would come. And he did. God promised that Jesus would die and he would rise again. And he did. And then God promised that Jesus would return. Guys, I don't know about you, but God's track record on kept promises is pretty good. The promise of God is as good as accomplished. So when the resurrection is proclaimed, and it's, the promise is, is held out to you, guys, Christ is returning and he has life eternal set aside for you. That promise is trustworthy. You are trusting the trustworthy. God has an insane track record when it comes to keeping his word. So why would we not believe him? In his letter to the Colossians, 
Paul says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, hear that church, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All is a big word. It means all whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You thought I was going to tell you some Greek thing behind that word. It just means all. (laughs) And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you and me, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Beloved, do you see this? Jesus, he's God. He is preeminent. He is before all things. He is the king of reality. There is nothing above him. Do you know what that means? About the sacrifice, the price he paid, the plan he made? You know what that means about that? It means it works. He's the king of reality. His plans work. His his price, his, his things he sets up, they're sufficient. His sacrifice is weighty enough to cover you and I's sin. He is preeminent. His sacrifice is infinitely capable of paying the price for you and I's sin. Beloved, he is sufficient. And I want you to hear this. His work is complete. It is finished. His salvation, his salvation plan has been accomplished and it is enough. His resurrection is real and it is enough. His promise is as good as accomplished. He is the king of reality. He's our Lord. He's our savior. And you and I, we can have him. We can have life and freedom in him. Guys, this sort of news is purely and simply marvelous. It is the natural response to hear this sort of thing and meditate on this sort of amazingly huge truth and then just find yourself simply marveling at the hugeness of it. But beloved, let me encourage you. Don't simply marvel at the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is worthy of marveling. But don't stop there. Yes, let us marvel at the amazing love and power of our God, our King. But beyond marveling at how good it is, 
Let us believe. Let us trust the trustworthy. Beloved, this is the goal of the gospel, that, that God might be glorified through you and I believing on him for salvation. This is, this is the point, that we might trust that this gospel proclaimed is actually true, that it's not a cultural identifier, that it's not our Sunday hobby, that it's not an emotional experience, but that what we just read and what we talked about actually reflects reality. That Jesus is our king and he rose from the dead and his resurrection is sufficient and he promised he'll come back and his promises are as good as accomplished. We can trust this proclamation. We can believe this proclamation. And beloved, if we actually believe, if we actually have faith in this Jesus, let us take the example of our dear sisters in Christ and let us also bear witness. If we truly believe that that gospel is actually true, well, let's take it with us, shall we? Let's, let's proclaim this wherever we find ourselves, regardless of whether or not we're well received. How can we keep but spreading this amazing message, beloved? Jesus is alive. Death is defeated. You and I can have freedom in him. Jesus is enough. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. Thank you falls short. Language falls short of the immensity of your graciousness, your love on our behalf. God, you are so good. I just want to celebrate you, God. I just want to, I want to sit in this amazing love, this amazing truth. Jesus, you are king and you are victorious and you are enough. And we love you. Let that truth resound in our hearts today. As we stew in you, as we meditate on you, as we think about you, and ultimately, as we trust you and believe you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name.